saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Shapers, conversations with science fiction and fantasy authors about the creative process. I'm your host, Edward Willems, and this episode's guest, Eden Trenholm. Welcome to another episode of The World Shapers, the podcast where I, Edward Willett, talk about uh, the creative process with other science fiction and fantasy authors. I am myself, an author and publisher. Uh, my most recent uh, release is The Tangled Stars from Daw Books, a far future outer space science fiction adventure, humorous, I should say, featuring an AI uplifted, uh, genetically modified talking cat who becomes a starship captain. So you'll want to rush out and find that one. Uh, another recent release of mine is uh, Soulworm. Soulworm is a new edition of my very first novel, which was a young adult uh, fantasy novel published just over 25 years ago. And I have now brought it out in a, a new edition from my Shadowpaw Press. Now, Shadowpaw Press is my publishing company, and uh, it's got lots of great things coming up soon. Uh, I just sent out a newsletter today, in fact, and if you go to the shadowpawpress.com website, you can sign up for my newsletters. Uh, what's coming up uh, in the new year are three science fiction books on uh, my winter 2024 list. I'm now a member of a literary press group and have distribution through Lit Distco, so I have to start thinking in terms of seasons as opposed to just throwing out books as soon as I get them ready. Uh, there's going to be one called The Good Soldier by Nir Yaniv, uh, which is, um, think, Catch-22 meets Starship Troopers. It's a uh, uh, science fiction military satire. Then there's another science fiction novel, a YA dystopian novel called uh, The Headmasters by Canadian author Mark Morton. And then, of course, there's Shapers of Worlds Volume 4, which is the uh, anthology featuring fourth-year guests of this podcast, following the first three volumes, which featured guests from each of those years. There should be a Volume 5. Um, well, I'm, I'm not quite sure what's happening with the podcast after I get to Episode 150. This is Episode 141. I may be changing the focus a bit and perhaps renaming it, but I will still be podcasting, so I won't say anything more about that until it's more certain. But there will definitely be a, a Kickstarter for Shapers of Worlds Volume 5 in the spring. Uh, one of the interesting things about Shapers of Worlds Volume 4 is that it's illustrated by uh, Calgary artist Wendy Nordell. I've been seeing those illustrations coming in. They're great, and I can't wait to get that book out. Uh, it will go out to backers of the Kickstarter this fall, and then it will be released uh, in January. will be the commercial release for So watch for that. Uh, in addition to Shadowpaw Press, I also have Endless Sky Books, which is uh, kind of an imprint of Shadowpaw Press, a little different publishing model. And there's a great new book out there as well called The School of the Haunted River, which is a semi-autobiographical -auto uh, wilderness adventure story uh, posthumously published. Uh, Colleen Gerwing was the author, and uh, she was a noted outdoors woman here in Saskatchewan, and it's full of great details about camping and canoeing uh, in the north. So look for that one right now, too. Uh, everything uh, is showing up again in bookstores now that I've switched over to the new uh, distributor. So, yeah, uh, check out all of the Shadowpaw Press books and go to shadowpawpress.com as well. Another great place to both find the books and to find out more about uh, what I'm publishing. Uh, Endless Sky Books has its own website at endless-sky-books.com. That's also where, if you're interested in my editing services, uh, you can contact me through Endless Sky Books or, of course, any one of my multiple email addresses, they'll all get to me. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's what I've been up to. Um, this this podcast is a week later than it should have been because of travel. I was at the North American Science Fiction Convention in Winnipeg back in July. And then I was just at When Words Collide in Calgary, a great convention I highly recommend. And uh, it will be happening again next year. So you might want to to check that out. And while I was there, I actually chatted and was on a panel of writers at the Improv with uh, today's guest. Uh, so why don't we get to that guest? It's Hayden Trenholm. 
Aidan Trenholm is an award-winning playwright, novelist, and short story writer. He has also been a public servant, an actor, a bartender, a freelance researcher and consultant, and a telemarketer for Alberta Ballet. His short fiction has appeared in many magazines, including Analog, Science Fiction, and Fact, and anthologies such as The Sum of Us and Strangers Among Us, and on CBC Radio. His first novel, A Circle of Birds, won the three-day novel writing competition in 1993. It was later translated and published in French. His trilogy, The Steel Chronicles, were each nominated for an Aurora Award. Stealing Home, the third book, was a finalist for the Sunburst Award. Hayden has won five Aurora Awards, three times for short fiction, twice for editing anthologies. He purchased Bundoran Press in 2012 and was its managing editor until the press closed in 2020. He lives with his wife and fellow writer Liz Westbrook-Trenholm in Ottawa, having retired in 2017 after 15 years as a policy advisor to the Senator for the Northwest Territories. In 2022, he was inducted into the Canadian Science Fiction and Fantasy Association Hall of Fame. Hey, Dan, welcome to the World Shapers. Thanks for having me, Ed. I appreciate it. Uh, I always, uh, with uh, authors, I'm always looking for connections, but it's not very hard to find them with, <laughs> with you <laughs> since we've known each other for, what, 30 years now? Probably? Pretty close, yeah, I think so. Started in Calgary at uh, Conversion when we used to go over there. And and then, of course, uh, Bundoran Press was mentioned, and you published two of my novels. You've been a published, right. my, one of my publishers and my editor as well. That's true, uh, you know, and I, I hope to have the same, uh, same thing to say say about you that you'll one day be my publisher and editor we never know what what the future may hold yeah i'm the one trying to do make make publishing work now so you know hope springs eternal that's right <laughs> well let's start at the very beginning a, a very good place to start um not with do re mi but with uh where you were born where you grew up and how the writing bug got hold of you you probably started as a reader most of us do I did, Ed. Uh, I, I'm originally from Amherst, Nova Scotia. Uh, I grew up there and, and then went to university just across the border in, in New Brunswick to Mount Allison University. I probably started reading science fiction when I was oh, maybe eight or nine years old. Um, and, uh, you know, one of, among my favorite authors of the time were Andre Norton, uh, Isaac Asimov, uh, Robert Heinlein, of course. Uh, so I, I certainly was well uh, immersed in science fiction at a young age. Um, as far as writing, I didn't really try my hand at writing very much. I was more of a science student than anything else. Uh, in fact, my first degree is a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry. Uh, but I did dabble in uh, a little playwriting because it was an amateur dramatics. Fortunately, none of those efforts uh, exist today. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, and of course, uh, you know, like any young man, I wrote some really bad love poetry. Uh, but it wasn't until I, uh, I went to the Northwest Territories that I was uh, first really inspired to write. I began with, uh, there were two things. First off, I, I started writing modules for Dungeons and Dragons, uh, as I had a little group of players in Frobisher Bay, or as a cow it was then known. And uh, so that showed me I knew how to plot a little bit. And then when I went, went to Yellowknife, I got very involved in drama again and uh, was in a couple of pretty bad plays and decided that I could probably write a better one myself. And that's uh, really the first serious bit of writing I wrote in my early 30s. There's a play called Hemingway Crosses the Mackenzie, uh, a fictional account of, uh, or, or sort of about being Métis. It was really a story about uh, people living between two worlds, neither part of the colonial world or part of the indigenous world, but somewhere in between. Uh, I had been working with the Métis for a number of years, and I was familiar with the kinds of issues that they, they faced on a daily basis. And so I talked to some people about some of the background ideas, and, uh, and then when I had wrote this play, and it was uh, produced at the Northern Arts and Cultural Centre uh, and then went on to represent the Northwest Territories in the Canada Theatre Festival in, in Saskatchewan, in Regina, in fact. A, a fine uh, place. Yeah, a fine place. <laughs> uh, so that was my, my beginning point. And in fact, when I left uh, the Northwest Territories, I, I, I uh, had been there nine years and decided it had enough. My uh, ex-wife uh, wanted to go to... She, now, she, she wasn't my ex-wife then, but she is now. But uh, she wanted to go to... Uh, take her master's degree, and we so we went to Calgary. And my idea was I was going to be a playwright. Uh, I had uh, done a play and uh, did the Fringe tour, uh, and had a number of plays produced in Calgary at Lunchbox Theatre, uh, Workshop West in Edmonton. Uh, came first or second in some playwriting competitions, 
But at the same time, uh, I was also interested in, in returning to writing science fiction, returning to writing prose. Uh, as you mentioned in my bio, uh, I entered the three-day novel competition uh, and was quite surprised to win it. Um, but, um, but I did, and it was published and uh, remains in print to this day, A Circle of Birds. And um, But about that time, too, I, I had a play that uh, came very close to being a national hit. Uh, it was the sixth choice of five regional theaters. Uh, and of course, you'd know what that means, Ed, is that regional theaters only do five plays every season. So, <laughs> so I came that close. If, if, uh, if uh, my play uh, called Dinks, Double Income, No Kids, had been even the first cho fifth choice of one of those theaters, I might well never have stopped writing plays and, and got involved in writing science fiction. But I, uh, I felt a little dispirited, but then I started selling uh, science fiction stories, and the rest is history. Back when you were writing plays, where did they have a speculative... I mean, I was in one of them at Conversion once. <laughs> That's right. Uh, some of them had uh, a speculative element. I did write uh, a play called Trophies, which was uh, about vampires. Um, I did... Uh, it was never actually produced. It came close, but they finally decided they didn't. Lunchbox Theater uh, had a program that uh, provided a grant to, to provide plays, so they thought it was an interesting idea that they gave me the money to write it, but then uh, again, I think it was the sixth choice of their five-play season. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I had another uh, short piece uh, that was produced uh, at, uh, at a reading series in, in uh, Alberta Playwrights, Playwrights Network, um, but most of my other plays were, were pretty straightforward uh, historical plays. I wrote a play about Ezra Pound. Uh, I wrote a play about uh, uh, Christopher Marlowe uh, as well. And, uh, and those, those were some of the plays that won, won competitions. And uh, again, it's a lot easier to win a competition than it is to actually get someone to spend $10,000 to mount a play. Yes, I've... Uh, I've placed or won a couple of playwriting competitions and those plays have <laughs> never been produced. So <laughs> um, so did you ever have any formal writing training in all that time? It, you know, it sounds like you just started writing. Um, I, I, yeah, I did. That's pretty much it. Um, I took a couple of workshops when I was in Yellowknife. Uh, we had a, a, a program at the, at the Northern Arts and Cultural Center where we would bring in uh, mostly acting workshops, but uh, it's amazing how much you can learn from, uh, from acting uh, about writing. Yes. Um, so that was, a, that was sort of a, a bit of my formal training. Um, I, taken, I also took some courses uh, uh, by extension uh, in English literature. So uh, again, reading a lot of great books and then trying to uh, write essays about them and prove it. But to tell you the truth, where I really learned how to write uh, was in the Priorities and Planning Secretariat to Cabinet in the Northwest Territories, because <laughs> One of the things we had to do was we would get a 20-page decision paper uh, from a department, and uh, we would have to, to essentially summarize it, uh, focus on what the, the core issues were, what the themes were, what all of it, it was like writing a short story in a lot of ways to, to present to cabinet in two pages what the department had seen fit to write in 20 or 40 or one case 60 pages. Um, it, it was a great way to learn how to find the telling detail, uh, to write strong, powerful sentences, to uh, essentially logically plot out what uh, the cabinet needed to know. Uh, so I always think of that as was a kind of a, a school of writing. Uh, once I moved to Calgary and was working in, in playwriting, I was fortunate enough to take a couple of workshops from Sharon Pollock. Mm. who was a two-time winner of the Governor General's Award for for drama. I worked with her um, here in Regina at a, the um, Festival of New Plays. I was in the cast of a play that she directed, so I had a chance yeah. to work with her. Yeah, she was a, a, great, a great person, a great woman, a great playwright. 
uh, stayed active. Uh, she just died a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but she had a play produced, I believe she was 81 when her last play was produced. So she, uh, she was an amazing figure. So I, I had, uh, I had that opportunity. I also uh, took some workshops from uh, Gordon Pengilly, another playwright, uh, who, who's had a lot of work produced in Alberta and, and other places in Canada. So, uh, those were the kinds of uh, opportunities I, I did have, uh, and that's where I got most of my training. And then uh, eventually, uh, when I was in Calgary and was writing science fiction, the Imaginative Fiction Writers Association uh, ran a series of workshops, which uh, I was coordinator for for the first two or three years. So we had, uh, I, I brought in uh, Robert Sawyer was our first, uh, first workshop leader. We also had uh, Joe Haldeman. Connie Willis, C.J. Sherry, Dave Wolverton, uh, so quite a quite a, uh, a collection of fabulous science fiction writers coming in to work with you for a couple of days, and uh, as well as spending a lot of social time and, and just giving you some great advice on writing. So I guess I guess most of my writing training was picked up that way through workshops and uh, through mentorship with uh, with writers much better than me. Mm-hmm. And the. Uh you mentioned IFWA, the Imaginative Fiction Writers Association. Um, so I often ask writers as well if they've had a good um, writing group they've been able to be a part of to to get benefit from. Uh, is it safe to say that if, IFWA was beneficial in that area? You know, I've been lucky enough to have two great writing groups. Uh, IFWA was fabulous, uh, particularly for, for when I was just starting out, uh, just learning to write. I was working with peers, we had a certain amount of friendly competition. It's a big group, it still is a big group. Uh, and so it was very, very helpful. And the fact that they ran those workshops was was very useful as well. When I moved to Ottawa, um, I, I was actually approached by a, a couple of beginning writers uh, who wanted to form a, a, a writing group. Uh, and uh, they looked at me and I, I had quite a few publications by then. I had a, a couple of no, a novel out. Uh, my first first of the Steel Chronicles was, had just come out. So Derek Kunskin, who's now gone on to have uh, six uh, novels published, uh, is a hard science fiction writer. He's been uh, on the show. He's been yes. So you know Derek. Uh, he he was there. Matt Moore, a horror writer. Uh, uh, Peter Atwood, who who had been a publisher actually of Blizzard Press, the the playwright, the uh, press out of I think Winnipeg that that. Uh, published a lot of plays. Uh, and then we also had Marie Bilodeau, who's had a number of novels. Uh, Kate Hartfield joined us later on, uh, and Kate is now, I think she had three novels come up this year. So uh, it was kind of fun. I, I started off as sort of the the uh, grandmaster, ha, 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 of, of the group and uh, have, have been certainly exceeded in my uh, by all of those writers uh, so you know it, it, having two great groups to uh, to uh, mentor me and to work with me and critique my work and and uh, help me you know hone my continue to hone my craft as, as I went along was was great you've had uh, you know varied experiences living in in Northwest territories being a playwright being a policy advisor I guess is that the right word mm-hmm. Um how does all of that feed in? And you had the science background. How, how has all of that come together in your writing, do you think? Well, you know, one of the things that, that I, I was very fortunate of um, is the, the people I worked with, the, the senator uh, that I worked with here in, in Ottawa, uh, and as well as a number of politicians in the north, uh, you know, were all indigenous. And so I was exposed to a different way of looking at the world, different way of thinking about the world, different way of thinking about culture and language. Um, and I think that was very influential for me. Uh, and to bring it together then with, you know, a continued interest in science. You know, I have my, had my chemistry degree. I have degrees in political science and sociology as well. Um, and a lifelong interest in science. I still, I still read physics for fun. And, uh, you know, I, I work, I do even do math for fun uh, from time to time. Uh, so those things do kind of intersect in a, in a weird kind of way and, and very inspirational in terms of trying to write stories that are, are not just entertaining, but also have a uh, philosophical component to them, a, a scientific exploration to them. Uh, so I think all of those those things come together uh, to help me uh, 
create stories and to, you know, come up with stories. Uh, on the playwriting side, something I always ask people, who, and I've talked to several who've had some theatrical background, uh, Orson Scott Card, for example, and, and many others. Um, I find, personally, as an actor and a playwright and someone who's familiar with being on stage, I, I, I feel that it helps my writing um, in visualizing things and, and having that sense of place and where people are in relationship to each other. So that's a benefit that I found. And also, of course, there's the matter of dialogue and that you have to tell so much of your story through through dialogue. Have those been something that you found reflected in your fiction writing as well? Yeah, I think I think uh, one of the things that come most naturally to me because of my stage experience and, and also directing plays uh, is I think dialogue is the, the thing I find I can do easiest and, and I think I do it pretty well. In fact, one of the challenges for me is not to write everything in dialogue is to, <laughs> uh, is to uh, you know, then quite often when I go back to do editing, the thing I discover is what I need to do is put in some setting. And I need to put in some action because, you know, it is not a play. It is a story. Uh, it is prose. Um, but it's very useful, and and in fact, uh, you know the the whole visualization thing. Uh, I, I remember when I was writing Defining Diana, and there was a, a scene where uh, it was a highly fraught uh, scene where a police officer had to enter a, a space where he thought a crime had been committed, where the murderer was still in the room or in the in the in the building. So I actually acted it out uh, physically uh, to try and get the the movements down. Um, uh, I also will incorporate a lot of places that I've been. And if, I, if I'm in an interesting space, I will actually visualize it and, and consider um, how people might move through that space and, and uh, how they might interact in that space. So I do quite a lot of that. And I think it probably does come from, from stage work where, you know, where you're placed on the stage is a significant part of how the story is told, the relationship of one body to another in a, in a in a fixed space, uh, so yeah, I, I would I would say that that had a, a great influence on my my writing today. Um, I often say that the acting side of things is very similar to creating characters in the story. You're putting yourself inside somebody else's head, and uh, you know something that that you learn to do or it comes naturally to you as an actor is obviously exactly what you're doing when you're creating characters on the page. Yep, I think so, and and I think that. Um, it, it, because there's a similarity. One of the things I always say is, you know, when it, when people say, "Well, why do why do people read fiction?" Uh, it's because you know all of us is no matter how empathic we are, no matter how good we are at conversation and at listening to other people, all of us are alone in our own heads. And one of the great things that fiction gives us, that acting gives us, is the opportunity to consider how other people think and feel, how they uh, they might experience things quite differently than you would as as an individual. And uh, and being able to, to to enter someone else's head, I think, is uh, one of the things that people want more than anything else. It's that feeling of being connected to other people, to other times, other places, uh, the sense that they are more than just themselves, that they are part of a community. And I think both acting and, and stage work, as well as uh, creating characters uh, in fiction, is part of that uh, natural human desire to be connected to the other. We're going to talk about your uh, latest book, The Passion of Ivan Rodriguez. But um, I did want to touch on Bundoran Press as well, because when I was talking to you at uh, NASFIC, the North American Science Fiction Convention in Winnipeg, you had mentioned that it's been a while since you've written a novel, and part of that was because of the pressures of publishing. And since I'm now publishing, um, I would uh, like to, you know, let's mention how what Bundoran Press was and, and how that all came about and what you accomplished while you were there and why sure. you did it. Um, well, I... Uh, I my original contact with Bandura and Press was uh, uh, they published first. They published the best of Neomopsis, and and one of my short stories was included in the anthology, which was great. And I noticed on their website when I was looking at that uh, that they were looking for novels. So I I had a, a novel that I'd finished. Um, it had I tried it with some of the big big press, but I don't think I was quite ready for the big publishers. Um, so anyway, I sent it to them, and they said, "Yeah, we'd like to publish that." So Defining Diana was the first book that they wrote. And then after they published it, they said, well, would you write a sequel, which had never been in my mind to write a second book about Frank Steele. But I said, sure, I can do that. And uh, so I wrote Steele Whispers, which I think was a, 
considerable improvement over over my first effort. I think it's a very strong novel. I'm quite proud of it. Uh, and then they uh, they then said, well, how about a third one? Uh, and uh, so I did write the third one, Stealing Home, which I'm also quite proud of, but I also ended it in such a way that they could not ask me to write a fourth one. Uh, but shortly after that, uh, I was asked to put together an anthology called Blood and Water, uh, which is essentially uh, climate uh, fiction. Uh, one of the first cli-fi uh, anthologies actually predates quite a few of the other ones that are maybe a little better known. Um, and uh, it uh, it was great to to uh, to take on that task first. My first task as an editor, uh, and uh, it was neat in that. Uh, there were a number of people who, who published their first or second short story in that anthology, including Gerald Brandt, who went on to uh, to be uh, uh, published by Daw Books. Uh, Derek Kunskin, it was only his third story. Uh, Kate Hartfield, it was her first paid story. Uh, as I mentioned, she she had gone on to, to write. So it, it was a pretty successful anthology. In fact, it, at one point it was... Uh, uh, used uh, in a course at the College of uh, College University College of Cape Breton, uh, which was kind of neat uh, to have uh, your work uh, become reach the level of, of academic interest, where they would actually teach the, the book in uh, in a course. Uh, and shortly after that, uh, Virginia approached me. She she had other interests. Her her daughter is a, a World Cup athlete in uh, snowboard. Uh, and uh, so she wanted to really support her daughter in her athletic career and couldn't do that and keep running by Miller and Press. So after some back and forth, I decided I would uh, buy the press from her, uh, which I did at the December of 2012. Um, and one of the decisions I made right away was that uh, I was only going to publish science fiction. Uh, the press before it had uh, some fantasy, it had some paranormal, paranormal romance things, just didn't interest me. I, I don't really read much fantasy, uh, or not anymore. I used to when I was younger, but not much anymore. So I really wanted to focus and make it a science fiction press. And, uh, you know, one of the first books that I purchased was uh, the first book I bought from you. Uh, and uh, But I went on from there. I, I published 21 novels altogether. Uh, from quite a number of, of different writers. Uh, Alison Sinclair had two books uh, for me, and uh, Alex is, Alison had a, a pretty good career uh, herself uh, uh, outside of Bundor and Press. Uh, Brent Nichol had a couple of books and now has, uh, has gone on to a fairly successful uh, small press career. So there were a number of, of people that I published, and uh, in addition to that, I published four more anthologies. Um, which were great. All of them were nominated for an Aurora Award. Uh, Blood and Water had won one. I uh, also won uh, uh, with Second Context, which I co-edited with one of my partners, uh, Mike Reimer. Uh, and uh, so that was a great, great thing to be able to do with Mike and, and give him some profile in the, in the community. And he continues uh, now to, uh, to write. I saw so far this year, I think he's had four short stories uh, sold. So, um, so it was a great, great experience. I really, uh, really loved doing Bandor and Press, but uh, financially it was a little tough. And uh, we'd actually just sort of kind of get through the worst of it. And we're starting to to break even, make a little money uh, when COVID arrived. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of that kind of finished it, uh, uh, you know. It, it took a while to learn how to to market things from the press, and a big part of our marketing was was conventions, uh, our author exposure, going to uh, not just science fiction conventions but other other book events. And of course, we lost all that. Uh, yeah. And at that point, I just you know it just didn't make sense for me to to continue on. And you know, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to get back to my own writing by then. Uh, in fact, I had already, uh, I started writing Passion of Ivan Rodriguez uh, just after I retired from my day job. So I still had the press, and I had the press for a couple more years, but I didn't have having to go to the office uh, five days a week uh, or travel to the Northwest Territories uh, every couple of months. Um, so when I retired, I went to, um, uh, I went to England. Uh, my wife and I... Uh, rented a cottage in a town called Deal in Kent on the on English, uh, English Channel. 
uh, for two months. And uh, during that two-month period, I wrote about half of The Passion of Ivan Rodriguez. Uh, it was sort of in a big burst. I had done some work on it. I had some a lot of notes. I had a, a general plot. Uh, you know, I will get into how I plot after because not, I'm not quite a plotter, but I'm not quite a pants writer. <laughs> but um, but anyway, I wrote about half the book in, in those two months. And then uh, when I came back, I kept working on it. And I had a first draft done by uh, October. Uh, started to get it polished up. And uh, eventually, I think it was in 2018, I pitched it to Daw. Uh, and they were interested, but then Sheila Gilbert got ill and uh, and this stalled. And uh, so finally, I just said, you know what? I'm if even if they bought it now, I'd be in my seventies by the time it appeared. <laughs> and I I uh, thought, well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask around. I, you know, I, I've had good success with small presses. Uh, my first novel was a small press. My three books from Bundoran were small press. So. I actually approached Shadowpaw Press, this, this guy in you know, Saskatchewan, but he said he was interested but busy, uh, but to come back later. But by that time, I'd sent it to Taiki Press, Taiki Books, and, uh, and uh, Margaret uh, Curlis bought it, and uh, we worked on it, and, uh, and it was launched at uh, Dansvik last week. Yeah. Yeah, that Shadowpaw Press guy wasn't doing much there for a while. He was just too swamped. <laughs> yeah, I, I know how that feels. Um, well, let's talk about the passion of uh, Ivan Rodriguez then. Uh, perhaps a synopsis is the place to start. Sure. The very short synopsis is I, I call it a post-apocalyptic novel of recovery. Uh, I'm not very interested in the world falling apart but I recognize that from time to time it does. So what I'm interested in is how people might put the world back together again. Uh, it's also a novel of recovery in the sense that the three main characters have a lot of personal uh, damage uh, from trauma in their life. Uh, and to some extent, it's a novel of their recovery. So the book is both, uh, you know, on, on the big big scene or the big picture of it is is... North America. I mean, it's a picaresque novel. People travel from place to place, sometimes by airship, sometimes on foot. Um, they they encounter various aspects of a of a broken society, and then gradually try and figure out how to put it back together into a into a civilized world where where people can learn from the mistakes that led to the the apocalypse uh, and build a better place, you know, for for themselves and for all the people around them. Uh, at the same time, they also have to, uh, well, suffer more trauma, of course, uh, because that's the nature of fiction. Uh, you, you have to really push your characters to the limit so that you can find out, so the reader can find out just what strength might look like, just what what uh, compassion might look like, what uh, uh, what people can do, even even if they're they're broken and hurt, how they can come back from that and. Uh, find ways to help themselves and to, by helping themselves, help others. So that's really what the book is about. Um, there's a lot going on in it. Uh, my editor said to me, uh, I, she told me she never thought she would say these words, but that she was amazed at how much I was able to do in just 120,000 words. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, there's a lot going on in the book. And um, uh, it was it was a lot of fun, too, because one of the things I decided was uh, I, I'm pretty good at physics and chemistry and, you know, all, all those things, but I'm not a genius. And uh, so I, I decided what I would do is have the physics be the physics of today as opposed to, you know, physics of 250 years from now. People fell back and then this is all they could recover to. So that made it much easier to, to write, you know, accurate science uh, because I didn't have to extrapolate too much. I did a little bit uh, here and there, but uh, I was able to use the, sort of the scientific knowledge of, of the 20, early 21st century to make a craft, I think, an interesting science fiction world. Uh, and uh, so that, that's basically what it's about. And uh, th there's a lot of other things in it. There's poetry, uh, There's uh, which I wrote a few, few poems uh, that are in the book. Uh, there's... Uh, uh, there's alternate lifestyles that, that I explore. 
there are, there's a lot of philosophy. Uh, at one point, uh, I, I guess I, I'll quote what Publishers Weekly said is that uh, it, the whole thing revolves around the central theme of when the world falls apart, what does it mean to live a good life? Uh, in the Aristotelian sense of the good life, um, and that's what that's what the book is about. You know, how do you how do you uh, hold true to a moral stance when it so would be so easy not to? Uh, how do you try and be a good person when you see a lot of bad people around you? And and that's the journey that all three of the main characters go through. What was the impetus? This is the where do you get your ideas from? But what was the uh, inspiration for this? And in, and in general, where do you where do you tend to find story seeds? Um, well, you know, for this particular one, this is a this is a book that I think was um, inspired, as I say, a lot by by the work I did uh, politically and and working with indigenous people. Uh, one of the things that has struck me so often uh, when I when I and with indigenous people, when I listen to them, is they do live in a world that's largely been destroyed. Uh, you know the, the the effects of residential schools. My my boss, uh, the senator I worked for, uh, was in residential schools for eleven years. He was sexually assaulted while he was there as a six-year-old. Um, yet he went on to become a lawyer, uh, eventually the premier of the Northwest Territories, all the, all the while fighting against uh, depression and uh, addictions, which he conquered his addictions. Um, and this is, this is not an isolated story. So, so I was very much inspired by listening to these, these stories of recovery, these stories of people who, who are aspiring to, uh, to recover their own culture, their own uh, worldview to become and also become uh, integrated into the larger society that they now find themselves living in. So I think that was kind of a central inspiration for me was to to, uh, to take that. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't pretend to be indigenous to fully understand uh, indigenous thinking. I, I've read a lot, and I've, as I said, I've talked to a lot of people, and and I was, you know, very cautious. You know, in terms of how I, I use that, one of the, one of the characters is uh, Métis, is is uh, half Indigenous. She's also a physicist, which I thought was kind of fun to do. Um, so I think that's where it came from, and I and I had this feeling, you know, back in ten years ago, it seemed like everything was dystopic. Everything was, you know, the world is coming to an end, and all these terrible, you know culture or situations people are finding themselves in and even if they even if they succeeded it, it did make things much better and I, I didn't want to write about that I wanted to write about hope and about uh, perseverance and about strength and, and about uh, uh, being true to your your true your, your core nature uh, so that's where the book came from for me um, where I where I get my ideas are often, it, it is that intersection. It mostly, it doesn't necessarily come from real events, but it does come from a philosophical approach. I, I think a lot about things. I, I, uh, I often say that you know, really, you could, you could just like cut off my head, and I'd still be fine as long as the brain kept going, because I live about eighty-five percent inside my head, you know, as opposed to the rest of my body. Um, so, so that's kind of I, I look at the world and I, and I see things as as problematic. Uh, I see people struggling, and I want to try and address it. Sometimes I do it in a very serious way. Uh, sometimes I do it in a lighthearted and comical way. But I always want to try and explore problems. So, uh, and sometimes it comes from personal experience. Uh, so, Marion's War, uh, which won the Aurora Award for for short fiction. Um, is a is a story about a, a woman who was a soldier and who's suffering from uh, post traumatic stress disorder and uh, personality uh, fragmentation, uh, and who's faced with a situation where her actions will determine whether or not uh, peace is achieved or or war is resumed. Um, so the initial uh, th reason I wrote that story is. Uh, Back in 2015, uh, I was an eyewitness to the, the shooting of Nathan Cirillo on, at the War uh, Memorial. I was literally uh, 30 or 40 feet away when it happened. Um, 
Uh, it was a terrible thing. You can imagine uh, to see someone killed before your very eyes. Um, so after that, I uh, did suffer from post-traumatic stress uh, for a while, uh, depression. And uh, I had a good doctor and I had good friends and, and, and my wife was very, very supportive. Uh, and I worked my way through that. And it was, you know, it was minor. It was a single event a terrible event, but just a single event. And but it made me began to, to understand a little bit more about uh, what uh, soldiers go through, what uh, firefighters and, and police officers go through who are faced with those kind of events, uh, you know, over and over again. And uh, so I wanted to write a story again about someone who suffer is suffering, but who also has an inner strength. Uh, because I think a lot of people that, that I subsequently met, uh, the one thing that struck struck you is that even though they were struggling and they were troubled, they had a kind of inner strength that, that they were trying to reassert and take control back of their lives. So, you know, that's a good example of, of where a story comes from. I mean, it was set on a another planet with, uh, with alien enemies and uh, all, all of that kind of thing. It was kind of a homage to to the, the great uh, novel Enemy Mine, mm -hmm. uh, which you may be familiar with. Yeah. Uh, so so that's the other, I guess that's the other thing where a lot of my writing comes from is uh, I'm often writing stories uh, in discussion with or argument with other writers. Uh, people have approached a story in one particular way and I think, well, I have a different view on how that story could be written or how that story could be told. And uh, so a lot of a lot of my stories come out of those those kind of literary conversations as well. You said you're uh, kind of a cross between a plotter and a pantser. So what does your planning, uh, outlining, whatever look like? You said you had a lot of notes before you started writing this. Uh, I do. Uh, so it all starts when I get a, a sort of one idea, a central idea. So uh, so with Ivan Rodriguez, I I, I had uh, several ideas, but. Basically, it was this novel of recovery. Uh, but I knew I had to, to know a lot of stuff before I could write it because I decided there was going to be an airship in it. So I had to figure out how those things worked uh, and how one might, you know, adapt it to a, a, a very difficult world. Um, and I had to brush up on my phys my quantum physics and uh, I had to you know, do a, a number of things uh, about scientific invention uh, and just look at a lot of maps uh, as well. Um, so usually when I'm writing a novel, uh, I will spend about six or seven months uh, just reading. Uh, you know, I read a lot of books, I read a lot of articles, I do internet searches, and I take quite a few notes. Uh, I, I'm blessed, I think, with a, an excellent memory. I actually retain a lot of information uh, when, I, when, I, when it's important to me. So that's the starting point. And then uh, usually I'll, I'll uh, write uh, character arcs for the f three or four main characters, how, however many characters I think are important that I need to know, and little sketches of, of people I think will play a significant role. And then from there, uh, I now have a sense of where the novel's going. Um, and I kind of always know where the end point is. I always know the end. And it's good because now I'm writing murder mysteries and it's good to know how, how it gets solved before you uh, start writing. But then I'll, I'll usually plot out, you know, the first half of it, the first 20 chapters, however long it's going to be. Um, and then once I get there, I, I, I don't know precisely what's going to happen halfway through the book. It's too far away. Uh, so I'll start writing. Uh, I'll start writing. And, and then when I get about 10,000 words in, I can sort of see whether or not my plot's going in the right direction. Uh, and I'll make some adjustments at that point and maybe plot it a little farther. And then I just on a, do that in an iterative way uh, uh, to um, uh, write some more, see how the plot's working, make some adjustments. Sometimes I'll, I'll discover I've gone down the wrong trail and I have to backtrack. And, I, and I'm very, very ruthless when, it, when, it, when that happens. Uh, I, I have been known to just highlight 10,000 words and hit delete. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's gone. I don't, like people say, oh, don't you put it in a separate file? I say, no, nope, no, because then I'd be tempted to go back to it. And when I, when I know I've gone wrong, then I don't want to have to deal with that anymore. So I'll just delete it and replot from that point on and, and carry on. Um, the funny, what's always interesting to me every time I write a novel, and I've written quite a few now, uh, 
you know, between the five five novels traditionally published, and I just finished the third of my self-published mysteries, and I had three or four or five novels that didn't go anywhere because I wasn't ready for them to go anywhere. I wasn't good enough a writer at that point. Um, what I do find is the last 20,000 words, usually I write them in a week. Uh, it comes gushing out and because uh, I know, you know, I've got everything ready and we're at the top of the mountain and that's all just slide down towards the end. Yeah, I usually uh, find that as well when I'm close to the end that it'll really suddenly take off. If... Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and the thing, the thing, the great thing about uh, working at Bundor and Press and editing all those novels is uh, I think it made me a much better writer because uh, it helped me separate the, the writing from the editorial function. So while I constantly am checking in, checking in on the plot, making sure it's going, I never, I never, unless I've gone completely wrong, I'm never saying, well, that's not quite right. I got to sit here and work on it until it gets it right. I, I just, because I know I can go back and fix it. Uh, and that's, that's a, it's a hard lesson for most people to learn is to just accept that whatever they write, it's not finished. Right, and it's not it's not the best it can be. There's a lot of work yet to be done to make it the best it can be. Did um, you write every day, or do you write? Are you, what's your actual, you know, the whole actual physical act of writing? What's that like for you? Um, I, I I tend to uh, write in, I guess in in spurts. What what I'll do uh, is. Um, I'm one of those people who count, do word counts. So I, I learned a trick for writing that helped me a lot, especially for longer fiction, is uh, when I start out, I don't care how many words I, I write on the first day. In fact, I prefer to write less than a thousand. And then I'll, then I try to write more words every day until I get to a point where I can't type any faster. And then I, and usually by then I, I need a break. So after eight or nine days, I'll stop writing uh, for a week sometimes, uh, just to refresh my mind and to stuff. I, I try not to stay away too long because you, you lose the thread and, and so on. So once I'm into writing, I kind of write in chunks of five to nine days with three or four days or even, even as much as a week, but usually three or four days off. And then I'll go back and do the same thing. And that'll get me through, you know, a draft uh, in about, I, I think, I think altogether in terms of writing time, uh, it was about four and a half months to write the first draft of Ivan Rodriguez. And that's kind of typical for me, anywhere from three and a half to five and a half months to write a first draft. Uh, so which is why I can never do more than one a year, six months of research, <laughs> four or five months of writing, and then I've got a first draft. And then uh, once I get a first draft, I can set it aside and work out it and then work on other things while I'm cleaning up my draft or, I'll, you know, and, and I, always want to get to a second draft before I send it to anyone to read uh, so that I, at least I've gotten the worst atrocities taken care of in the, in the prose or in the plotting. Uh, and then I'll, then I'll send it off to people. And, and um, I try to get, uh, uh, I was lucky enough. I had eight people read Ivan Rodriguez and really varied people. Some were just uh, fans of science fiction. Uh, some were other writers. Some were writers in a completely different genre. Because uh, I wanted to to have a, a variety of views as to how the various pieces were working, uh, where the problems were, uh, from different perspectives, um, and then from there, it took me, I guess, another six months to to write a third draft to where I thought it was more or less publishable, and uh, and I th and I and of course I did another draft when uh, the editor Taiki asked me to make some changes. Are there things with uh, well, you you sort of mentioned uh, sometimes being dialogue heavy and having to add in more description and, and things like that. Is that uh, did that happen on this book? Is that typical? Are there yeah, things it, that you almost always have to do in revision? I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, yeah. The, the thing, uh, yeah, it, it's true. I, I very seldom have to edit my dialogue. I sometimes have to you know cut a bit of it, um, but the dialogue is is what comes easiest to me. So that's that's usually stays. Pretty much the same. Um, similarly, I've gotten pretty good at writing action scenes. Um, so, because you know, action scenes are kind of funny. It is is it's it's all just short choppy events, and you don't 
really need to paint as much a picture because once people are like rushing through an action scene, they'll they'll create the world around it. But it's the more uh, the quieter times when you're trying to you know develop the characters and develop the setting and and the, the larger world. That's where I have to do a lot of rewriting. I have to sit down and either have overwritten. Uh, you know, a, a description, uh, or it's just so sketchy that, that nobody would know what they were actually looking at. So, um, so one of the things I really focus on when I'm in a second draft is is to try and describe a scene or a character uh, with you know what we often call the telling detail. What is the distinguishing feature of a place or of a person? And if that can be the focus of this of that bit of narrative, uh, I find that's a good balance. Uh, but it usually means that uh, I'll add, uh, you know, ten thousand words from the first draft to the second draft. So you know, one hundred and ten thousand goes to one hundred and twenty thousand. But it's it's all useful stuff because it's 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 creating a much bigger picture, a much clearer picture for the reader, without without forcing them. Uh, into a very narrow uh, vision of what what they're looking at. I, I, my my view on writing is always that it's a it's a two way street. I mean, the the writers there producing their thoughts and and their vision of the world and and so on. But the reader has to also engage in in the prose and has to bring to it their own thinking and feeling and and their own perceptions. So. So, which is why, you know, you always get these debates. Well, that's not what I thought that character looked like. Well, that's what the character looked like in your head. And, this, and it's different from what it looked like in my head. And, and we can go back and argue what the prose actually said. But the reality is, is people will bring their own perceptions to, to the page. And, uh, and so I try to, to give them enough to go on without constraining them too much uh, so that the, their imagination isn't tamped down by the force of, of my writing. Yeah, I often talk about a, a reading writing as being a collaborative thing. Um, maybe not as much as as going back to playwriting, where you have actors and everybody else putting their two cents in. But at least for every reader, it's a unique book. It's different for each reader. Uh, there is no one book. It's 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 the book that you created, but then everybody else, it's it's different depending on what they bring to it. Yeah, exactly. Do you um, you've worked with with a number of editors over the years. Um, I was actually on a panel at NASFIC about editors are people too, which, you know, that might be a debatable point, but uh, <laughs> do you, have you found editors helpful to you over your career? Yeah, yeah, I actually have. And, and it's, it's the same thing. It, actually, we can go back to the stage work. Um, you know, the, the director, like the editor, is the person that stands back and looks at the whole thing as, as, as a unity. Um, whereas as a writer, you're often immersed in the individual parts. So the value of an editor, they can, they can see where there's a big gap that may be invisible to you because in your head, there's no gap, right? In, in your head, they went from point A to point L, you know, and, and all those other points in between are irrelevant. But for the editor says, no, you know, you need to have at least point D and, you know, point G <laughs> so we can step them, step the reader's you know, through the process. And I found that kind of thing, just as a director saying, no, you can't stand there. You've got to move on that line. You've got to, you got to fill that gap and you've got to show the, the relationship with characters through, through motion. Um, so yeah, I've generally found, uh, uh, you know, when was playwriting was the dramaturge is, is the editor in a sense. And it's, it's, and the thing with the dramaturge, the purpose of the dramaturge is to help you see what, what you're doing. They're not there to change your play or change your writing. They're to help it focus and help you write what you want. And that's what I've experienced with the best editors. Best editors don't get themselves too involved in, you know, sentence structure. Not 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 initially. I mean you get a copy editor, they gotta get clean it up. But the good, you know, substantive editors have, have got to try and see the vision that the writer was was had in their head. And help them focus on that, uh, help them, you know, cut away the extraneous parts, uh, add in uh, things that are missing um, so that the, story, the book becomes the best book that the author can produce. Um, you know, I, as an editor, that's what I tried to do. I, I never tried to change people's vision. I would sometimes ask them tough questions about what they really wanted to accomplish with the book and whether they thought that was the most interesting way to go. But in the end, you know, it's the author's book. And the editors, I 
worked with, I've been lucky enough uh, uh, to work with people who who also approach uh, the job of editing in that way. Uh, I, I never worry too much if someone wants to delete a few words or change the sentence structure and stuff like that, because, you know, that's that's a stylistic thing that uh, doesn't change the, the essence of the story. But but if an editor is trying to, you know, uh, impose their, their vision uh, on, on you and, and, and change your story to something that they couldn't write themselves, <laughs> uh, then it then I don't like that very much. And, and I will tell them so. Uh, I don't. I don't take every uh, thing that an editor asks me to do uh, as gospel. I just uh, I, I listen to them and think, well, th- yes, that that will make this a better book, and that will make it clearer uh, for the reader. So I'm quite happy to make those changes. And sometimes I just say, well, I, I don't agree with you, and I, uh, you know, I'm going to retain my my original approach, my original vision here. And and for the most part, that's worked out pretty well. You know, it's like. You give up on the easy stuff, and then you, you grab hold of the good stuff, and you just say, uh, the the third or so that you don't agree with, you just say, no, I'm not changing that. And and I've never had anyone say, well, heck with you, Trent, I'm, uh, we're not publishing your book now. It's like, it always works out okay. Well, we're getting into the last uh, few minutes here, so I wanted to ask you my big philosophical questions that I warned you about over the top, off the top, not over the top. <laughs> um and the first one is, uh, why do you write? The second one is, why do people in general write? Why do we do this crazy thing where we, we make up stories and put them down for people to read? And then the third question is, why uh, why science fiction fantasy specifically? So okay. there you go. So for me, why do I write? I write because I actually think it's the, the best thing I can do. Uh, you know, they always say you should uh, you should find the your bliss or you find find the thing you're best at and then do that. Uh, I've done a lot of things, uh, but almost all of it centers around communication. So even as a policy analyst, uh, most of what I did was writing. Uh, I wrote speeches for politicians. I, you know, so so writing has always been the thing that. Uh, I felt I could really master. And I also uh, think that communication between people is, is, is probably the highest form of being human. Um, you know, one way of thinking of even consciousness, you know, are you conscious if you're all by yourself all the time? Is, you, know, you may have voices in your head, but I believe that most of our consciousness actually emerges in the, in the space between people in the intersubjective spaces uh, of conversation. Uh, so writing for me is a way of engaging in the world, uh, just as reading is. So those are the two things I spend most of my day doing, either reading or writing. Um, I think I think it's similar for other people. I think some people feel a need uh, that their, their, their emotions and their thoughts are, are too big to be contained within their, their own bodies. Uh, and they need to express it. Uh, I think most writers as well uh, have problems with the world. Uh, I think uh, we look at the world and, uh, and, and it bothers us. And uh, we want to tell people about that. And, but we know, we learn very early on that that's boring. Uh, that just you know, telling people over and over again that they're wrong and that the, that the world is, is not working, you know, they pretty soon won't talk to you at parties. And, uh, but if you can turn it into a story that's entertaining and that gets your message across and gets your ideas across, well, people do want to talk about that and they do want to hang around with you. So I think, I think all of us writing... Uh, it's really, and it particularly, you know, it's just funny because so many writers are also introverts. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird uh, conflict with, within us. Uh, and I'm not speaking for all writers. I'm sure lots of people have different reasons why they write. But I think it's, it's partly, we have a tr- trouble, you know, as I say, going to the party and engaging. Uh, and this is a way to, to, to open that space up inside us, let other people in. And then once they're there, you, you have greater comfort, right? You know, when I go, even to this day, I, I'm not a great social person. I'm not a great party, right? but I'll go to a party. But if we can start talking about writing, talking about books we've read or books we've written, all of a sudden it's like this person comes within your circle. Uh, so I think it's a social act. I think writing is a social act. Um, 
and it's an important part of of uh, being civilized. I mean, you know, when there wasn't writing, there was storytelling, and storytelling was the thing, that, the glue that held communities together. Songs were the thing that held uh, communities together. People who sang together always worked well together. Um, so I think that's that's why I write and why a lot of people write is this desire to to create a larger community. Uh, ideally, I think you know, really ambitious writers want to create a community of the world. Uh, but I'd be happy just to create a, you know, a modest community of people that uh, I can write for uh, and that I can read what they've written for me, and, and that's good. As for why science fiction, because um, I, I did write fantasy a little bit when I was first starting out, but uh, everything to me is similar to why I'm involved in politics. Uh, I believe in the in in the possible possibility of change. I've always believed that making a change for better, making a change in the world is a, is a thing that one can do. And I think science fiction is always about the possibility of change because the things we write about in science fiction, at least, you know, particularly depending on how hard science fiction is, it is based in evidence. It's based in, you know, the, the physical laws of the universe that we can understand. And by understanding, we can use them to change things. Uh, through invention, through scientific exploration, by a better, clearer understanding of the world. So for me, science fiction is is, a, is almost a political act. Um, it's a way of engaging people with ideas that they might be reluctant to listen to otherwise. Uh, and uh, because there's a kind of you know there's a kind of protection, you know, oh, it's only science fiction. Uh, never mind that you're you're addressing uh, you know class inequalities or uh, racial issues or whatever it is that you want to address um, by bringing people into your science fiction you're actually opening up their their minds to bigger thoughts and and different realities different ways of the world could be so i think that's yeah, that's why i write science fiction and what are you working on now uh, I'm actually working on a kind of a sequel to uh, to Ivan Rodriguez, set another 250 years uh, uh, in the future. Uh, without you know, I, the last line of Ivan Rodriguez is everything is connected. Uh, that's not a spoiler; it's clear that's what the book is about. So I I thought after I wrote that I said, well, what if everything was connected? You know, what if if we were you know, all of biology was connected. If we were connected to plants and, and bacteria and fungi and animals and artificial intelligences, uh, intimately connected, not just like that they're around, but we actually can communicate with them that they shape, they help shape our broader thinking in sort of a, a meta way. Uh, it's, it's like a crazy book for me to tackle. It's probably way beyond my abilities, but, uh, uh, but I'm sure having fun uh, researching it. Uh, which is where I am right now. I'm in the sort of halfway through the research process, and uh, I hope to start writing uh, maybe in November. Uh, not not as part of NaNoWriMo, but just that's sort of <laughs> what I think the uh, timing will be right for me to get started. And um, if people want to keep up with you, is there a place to find you online? Sure. Uh, well, I have a, I have a website, uh, www.haydentrenholm.com. So if they can figure out how to spell my name, they can find me. Uh, there also Twitter. will be a link on the uh, on the yeah. podcast episode. I'm, I'm on X <laughs> as at Hayden Trenholm. And I'm also on, on Facebook and uh, occasionally on Instagram, although I still couldn't quite understand what the purpose of Instagram is other than to show people p pictures of flowers. Um, yeah, I struggle with Instagram myself. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm around and, you know, I, I I don't spend a lot of time, or I try not to spend too much time on social media because you know, it is the greatest destruction of writing time. It's like Facebook. You're looking at Facebook in the morning, and it's, oh my god, it's ten thirty. How'd that happen? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, thanks so much, Hayden, for for being on. Uh, I've been meaning to have you on for quite a while, so I'm glad we we finally made it happen. I appreciate uh, appreciate you having me, Ed. It's always great to talk to you. Uh, I've always enjoyed talking to you when when we when we meet. I, I loved uh, working on your books uh, with you, and I uh, was hap so happy to be able to publish uh, you as one of the first first people I published uh, with Bandura Press. So I hope our relationship will continue into the future. <laughs>
Well, the funny thing there is that you were talking about being asked to do a sequel of a book you never expected to do a sequel to. Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's exactly what you did to me. So. <laughs> and you did a really good job, too. <laughs> Actually, well, the second book's better than the first one, I think, in the particular pair. But, and I have picked up one Bundoran Press book, uh, Shadow Pop Press, in my reprint series, uh, Do a Tarot by Brad C. Anderson, who's also a guest on the podcast. So, Yeah, yeah, yeah it was a, a great book. Very, very dark, but uh, a really good book. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that's it for this time. So thanks so much. And uh, yeah, bye All for right, now. Thank you. And thanks again to Hayden Trinholm for being my guests. Uh, it's always great to talk to Hayden. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I hope both of us did. <laughs> that concludes this episode of The World Shapers. I'll just do the usual uh, housekeeping stuff, which is to remind you that The World Shapers is available online or findable, I guess, online at theworldshapers.com. It is also on Facebook at The World Shapers and on Twitter at The World Shapers. You can find me at edwardwillett.com to tease on Willett. You can find me on Twitter, sorry, X, at uh, eWillett. I'm on uh, Instagram at edwardwillettauthor. I'm on Facebook at edward.willett. And you can also find me on YouTube at Edward Willett. And if you go there, you can take walks with me around my home city of Regina, which I do not quite every day, but multiple times a week. And you can walk along with me and even leave comments as I walk, if you like. I, I often talk about writing and publishing on those walks, as well as many other things. You can find my publishing company, Shadowpaw Press, at shadowpawpress.com. It's also on Facebook at Shadowpaw Press and on Instagram at Shadowpaw Press and the other publishing company, Endless Sky Books, which offers self-publishing services as well as select books being published under the Endless Sky imprint, you can find at endless-sky-books.com. It's also on Instagram at Endless Sky Books and on Twitter at Endless Sky Books. Oh, did it again, on X as Endless Sky Books. Okay, that's it for this week. I hope you will come back. I have several uh, interviews coming up. Uh, so I'm not quite uh, wrapping up the World Shapers in its present form yet. And I might not. I might change my mind about that. So you'll want to keep checking back to see what I'm doing. <laughs> That's it for this time. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye for now. time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.